of the Psalms, Psalms 1 through 41 um, this year. Um, There is a a method to the madness. When we first planted this church, we started out in Luke, and we figured it'd be good to know who Jesus was, and so we went through the book of Luke and figured that out. And once we figured out Jesus, we figured since we were a church, we should probably know what the church is about, and so we went through the book of Acts, and um, went all the way through the book of Acts, and since we got Jesus and the church right, figured we'd probably reflect on the gospel of grace, and so we went through Galatians and looked at um, the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ and the freedom that it brings. We got the gospel right. We, of course, wanted to make sure it was thoroughly practical, so we went through James, book of James, and figure out how does the gospel become practical in everyday life. And so if we've got Jesus in the church, the gospel, and how it's practical in everyday life, this year we're looking at what does it look like for us to engage with God? What does it look like not just to show up on Sunday morning and worship God, but to lead a life of worship before God? Um, What does it look like to frame our words towards God? What does it look like to pray and to sing? The various trials and challenges that we face, are are those things that we're expected to handle by ourselves, or are those things um, that we're expected to go to God and to take to God and to be with God um, in the midst of those trials um, and challenges? And so we're really looking this year at what it means to be a worshiper um, of the Lord God. And as you'll see in this psalm, we're looking at the psalms um, as the Bible does, really through two lenses. The psalm that we're going to read this morning, Psalm 4, was written by King David. Um, he wrote that psalm um, in a, a challenge that he faced, and it's a lament psalm. Um, he cried out to God for help, and it made itself into the codex of psalms that Israel would rely on. And so Israelites, for a thousand years, used this psalm to sing and to pray and to reflect on um, how it is they find help with God and what they should do when they find their enemies against them. But that's not just where you leave it. It isn't just Israelite history. Um, it is interesting that way. It is a Jewish poem. In the same way we could look at a, um, a, a Babylonian poem or another culture. It is a poem that existed within a specific historical context. But what we see is that that poem was intended not just to be understood by David and the Israelites, but also us on this side of the cross. And so when the gospel writers, when Jesus himself was trying to bring words to the experience of the life of Christ and the life of the church, they reflected on and took the Psalms and showed that the Psalms meant more than just David and the Israelites. It told of what it would be like to be a Christian on this side of the crucifixion and resurrection. And so that's not some sort of exegetical judo. We're not just kind of reading back into it in some kind of Dr. Seuss way. I'm sure this applies to a lot of different things. We're actually doing what the New Testament does, looking back at these Psalms and saying there's more there than David knew, even though David wrote it. There's more there than the Israelites knew that all of the Old Testament pointed towards what Christ would accomplish. And so we want to do the same thing and read the Psalms back through the lens of the cross on this side. And I know that some of you would look back on the lives of, say, an Elijah or a Moses or a David and say, wouldn't that be cool to be back then, to see the amazing things that they saw? And I just want to encourage you, like, as a New Testament Christian, you know more about God than Elijah, Moses, and David altogether. Like, just what you know about Jesus and God's ways and works in the world, like, you know far more than all of them together, even the cool, amazing things that they saw. So, 
So really the cool, amazing things, partings of seas and axe heads floating and the sun standing still. I know there are moments that we wish we could see things like that. And certainly God can do amazing and miraculous things. But the parallel to that in the New Testament is the full knowledge of who Jesus is, of the gospel and the way to salvation. That is so much better than if we were to lose that and have these weird, miraculous things that we're trying to come to grips with, what in the world do they mean? And so on this side of the cross, we have a wealth of knowledge that David would have loved to have, even though he's the author of the psalm that we're looking at this morning. And so we're going to look at that this morning in this psalm through these two different lenses. You're going to see verse 4 of Psalm 4, quoted by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, um, 26. And so as we read through, you might recognize that as a familiar um, verse that you say, I, I know that that's probably somewhere. It occurs a few times in, um, in the Bible. We're also going to look at it because it's a psalm of lament. Um, and as I was thinking this morning, um, there's a lot of um, people I know, and at times myself, go through just depression and darkness and sadness and a lack of hope. And you would think that those are the times that we would be most prone to go to God, um, that when we're sad or face challenges. But in my own experience, both myself and as I've pastored and counseled people, I found often when we're sad, depressed, discouraged, when the darkness descends upon us, there are a lot of reasons we make up in our heads to not go to God. There's a lot of obstacles we put in our own way. And so when you come to the Psalms, and we now come to our first Psalm of Lament in Psalm 4, um, the majority number of Psalms, genre-wise, in the Psalter are Psalms of Lament, of being able to go to God with the expectation there are going to be times that we're sad and depressed. And when we are sad and depressed, we can go to God and find a God who understands, knows, saw that coming, and made a way for us to come to him and find joy and peace and light and encouragement and comfort in the midst of whatever we're dealing with. So if that's you this morning, um, this psalm is particularly for you. Um, the last thing I'll say before I read it, um, this psalm does um, what we're, you probably don't know you're used to doing, but in worship, a lot of times we talk to different people and not just God. Um, so when you're singing your song this morning and we sang some of our songs, of course you were addressing them to God. But I don't know if you noticed when you, said, when you sang All Creatures of Our God and King, you're actually addressing all creatures of our God and King. And so to some degree you're calling out over the horse and cattle of Culpeper um, to praise God. You're yelling across the field out there back to Old Rag, to the mountain, and saying, do what you were created to do, mountain, and praise God. Um, there are times when we would talk to one another um, and, and call each other to praise God in different songs. And what you're going to see this morning in this psalm is that David's praying to God um, in the first few verses, and then actually he starts exhorting his enemies, enemies of God, saying, this is what you should do. I'm being persecuted, God, by all these guys over here. And you guys over here, this is what you should do. And then at the end, he goes back and saying, and so God, I, I pray that you'd be with me. And so there, it just it teaches us that our relationship as Christians to God is not just between God, but between the world and between our enemies and between our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ. That worship isn't just vertical, that there's an aspect horizontally 
where we're exhorting one another and we're speaking God's truth into various areas of our life and really wrapping up whatever's going on in your world and bringing that before God and this ongoing, not just um, dialogue, but even trialogue between you and God and you and the mountains and you and your enemies and you and your friends and just speaking towards God. This is everything that's going on in my life. It's almost like, I don't know if your, your kids, um, most kids that I know go through the, the age where they give the ongoing running narrative of everything. Um, it's a really interesting time for parents when, you know, you're in the car and like the kid's just like, oh, there's a car and there's a mountain and there's a tree and they just talk all the time because they just, they comment on everything that's going on around them because they're developing verbally and they're understanding the world around them. Well, to some degree, that's what it's like to be a Christian in worship. You're just giving this ongoing narrative with God. Oh God, here's a challenge. Oh God, look, I'm happy. Oh God, here I am in worship. Oh God, I don't like that person. Oh God, this person's awesome. Oh God, you're great. Oh God, the mountains. And so it's just, you'll see that this morning as we go through this psalm. And so that's an encouragement to you, even as we pray, that prayer is really not just uh, every once in a while before God. It's really living um, what John Calvin's motto was, Corum Deo, um, living life before the face of God, that all of life is lived before the face of God. So with that introduction, um, Psalm 4, the word of our God. Psalm 4, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they when they have grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Because this is the word of God, why don't we pray this morning before we consider it. Father, we come to you um, not above your word as if we could critique it not beside your word, as if somehow we have equal authority with it, but we come to you under your word. Your word carries weight with us, the weight, the authority. It is supreme to us. You have spoken into human history without error and with all truth for all generations. And so we come, Lord, as disciples, as students, and as children to hear from you, Father. Be with us, Lord. We would see Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So as I've already um, said to you, we'll look at this psalm briefly as David would have um, considered it with some reflection and then look at it through the cross and then um, call it a morning, at least as we've looked at this passage. And so what you see in the beginning is this cry for help, that in sadness, frustration, challenge, faced with his enemies, um, David cries out to God for help. And again, I don't want to belabor the point, but I find it so much in my own heart, in my own pastoral experience, that I want to say, again, the Psalms and the Bible as a whole presents challenge, darkness, depression, sadness, crisis, tragedy, as all instances to drive us towards God. When those things come, it's about developing a reflex 
to go to God with them. Not when you finish thinking about them, not when they're done, not when you think you've handled them, not when you've started to get some you know, hold on them in your life, not after you've seen a counselor, not after you've talked to someone about it, not after you've memorized Bible verses about it, not after you've ordered a book on Amazon that deals with it, but when it first starts to settle on you, that you should say, not just what's going on with me, but this is an occasion to go to God. I think there is something about our Americanism um, that tries to teach us that when we face crisis or tragedy or something happens with us, it's because something is wrong with us and that we need to get our acts together by ourselves, kind of deal with it, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, be a strong person, don't let them see you cry. And then once we've done that, then we can go and engage outside of ourselves. And so we tend to think of ourselves as as individual closed-off people, crisis, depression, darkness, discouragement, challenge goes on inside of me, inside of my heart. And once I've dealt with it, or if I've dealt with it with a long time and I can't find some answer, then I go outside of myself to other people to deal with it. And it's very dangerous when you try and do that with the Lord. Because one of the reasons God has allowed for crisis, tragedy, depression, discouragement, a lack of hope to occur in the world is to drive us towards him. Because when we're honest, we have to admit, if God in this moment took away all suffering from your life, all challenge, all depression, all darkness, all discouragement, if you could, in your life, live for the rest of your days in perfect bliss, if you could even imagine it right now, what that would be like, would you worship God more or less? Honestly. We would want to say in perfection in the garden, Adam and Eve, before the fall, because of the way they were wired, they would. No sin, no tragedy, no darkness, no Satan yet, and they worship God, completely dependent on him. But after sin, our hearts are bent. And even after salvation, we still have those remnants of sin, so that the more affluence, the more peace, the more bliss that we experience, often the more excuses we have to not run to God. That does not mean that God is some kind of abusive dad and loves to hurt us. Doesn't mean that God doesn't um, weep over tragedy and suffering, but what it does mean is when it falls, He wants you to come to Him. He wants you to find voice in the Psalms. He doesn't want you to give yourself to self pity because it's, you see, that there are these, these twin benefits when we deal with crisis and suffering on our own that are without God. And the first is that if we somehow can be the most suffering person that we know, we can cater the sympathy and attention of the people around us. That people will come to us and care about us and speak to us who wouldn't normally, if we can say, my life's a wreck, a huge wreck, more of a wreck than anybody else, then you should come and be near me and see me as someone whose life is a wreck and give me approval because I'm a wreck and I'm in crisis. And there's this subtle manipulation that you try and just parade your junk and your stuff out so that people will approve of you because you're suffering more than anybody else. It's self-pity. It's aren't I somebody because I'm suffering so much. Aren't I someone that deserves everybody's attention? But the other side is pride. What if you can, from your own good works and your own strength, face that crisis and challenge? Well, then you can go on TV and Oprah and write your book and make millions. 
This is how I faced my challenge. This is how I, by myself, went through depression and darkness. This is how I conquered this in my life. Do you hear the I? It's either, look at me, I am suffering. Look at me, I am strong. Where you see here, oh God, help. You might be in amazing crisis and tragedy, and you might need the support of friends and loved ones in your church. But in that, would we not want God to get glory that he is faithful to be with us? You may walk out of crisis and suffering and tragedy and find great blessing and peace, but in that back end, would you not want to be able to say, look at what my God has done for me? Would you not want him to get the credit? Are you going to be a glory robber of God? So David gives us such a great example in these first two verses of saying, are you facing trial and tragedy? Let it be your reflex. I don't need you to think theologically. I don't need you to replay the first 10 minutes of this sermon. I need you to be, just be reflexive for you. It hurts. Something's wrong. I'm sad. I've lacked hope. I go to God. That's it. And that's one of the ways that living in the Psalms like we do trains us to go to God. It's one of the things I loved when I was doing youth ministry. We inherited um, a, a I guess a style of worship where um, it was something that had come from the college ministry of our, our Presbyterian church in America, of our denomination, where they were looking to take old, um, robust, great hymns of the faith um, and reset them to um, music that was le- easier to sing in like someone's living room with a guitar. Um, and so we inherited these songs in our youth ministry. Some of them were as upbeat and happy as you could get, and some of them were some of the most Um, not discouraging, but dark, but taking the darkness to God, which we have encapsulated in the hymns of our faith. So I'd I'd hear these high school students singing about going to God in the midst of the dark valleys and looking on the one who is stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us, of knowing that God can be with us, that he moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to behold. I just thought, what a gift these kids are getting. They don't even know. They're, They're learning that life is hard. And that God is with us in the hardness and not just in the happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. And the reason that's in our hymnody is because it's in our psalmody. The reason that Isaac Watts and all these guys put it in the hymns is because they learned it from the psalms. And you see it here this morning. And so I wonder, even if you don't listen to anything else I'm about to say in in this passage, if, if you haven't gone through a time of suffering or sitting in it right now, and you have just stubbornly refused to go to God for help, for his encouragement, for peace from him, and instead you're toying with, you're fiddling with either self-pity or pride. Either woe is me, I'm going to wallow, or I'm going to figure this out and be someone who figures this out. Go to God. Find in him what David found. You see, David even reflects on verse 2. Like, you are this God. You've done this for me. I found you to be true. This isn't the first time. This isn't my first rodeo. This isn't the first time I've faced someone who's an enemy. I've already found you to be true um, in these things. And so that's the first thing. Cry out to help. Cry out to God for help when you face trial and tragedy. Um, the second thing you see him doing is you see him talking to um, his enemies, exhorting um, these men who are against him. David, as we talked about um, two weeks ago, um, he just found himself always in conflict. Like the guy was just always finding folks who were trying to oppose him, hit him with spears, kill him, just 
exile him from within his family, from outside of his family, from his friends, from the Philistines. Like, David was just always finding folks against him. And so in that, he would cry out to God and ask him for help. And you see him then turning, like I said, in this prayer and song, to these folks who are against him and giving them counsel of what they should do. And he says three things. First, he says, to remember, know that God has a loving and listening relationship with his people. You see that in verse three. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call. So one of the things David knew and he exhorted his enemies is that he has special standing with God because God chose him. If you remember how God chose David, it wasn't because David was the biggest or the strongest or anything else. God had tried that with Saul to show the people that didn't work so well. He chose David because he wasn't. David became a great king, even in his sin. But it said that God looks upon his heart, not on outwardly and how competent and capable he was. And so David found, this is a God who's chosen me to love me and to hear me when I call. And so God has made a differentiation within humanity that these are people he's decided to love and lavish and listen to. And that's based on what he's done. So again, I know there are times when it feels like your prayers bounce off the ceiling. I know there are times when Satan would want you to believe that God doesn't hear. Here it says, based on God's grace and own choosing, that he's chosen to listen to his people. It's not because they've done great things. It's not because they've had 10 quiet times in a row and so get a 30-minute office hours with God where he'll listen to them. He just decides to listen to them because he's loving and he is your dad in heaven. That's the first thing he says. The second thing that he says is to beware. And this is the verse you probably recognize from Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. And so what he's saying to his, his, his enemies is, listen, you want to be upset with me and how I'm leading? You want to be angry? That's fine. Be angry. Anger as an emotion is not sin. In fact, anger as an emotion can be very, very righteous and good. Um, as long as your anger accords with the things that God's angry at. Where we get into trouble is when our anger drives us to sin. And so David's saying, listen, anger, it's great sometimes. But if you're angry, deal with that. Figure out why you're angry. Take that to the Lord. Figure out what action there is rather than deciding to sin. It's great advice for people in any kind of area. And so he says, ponder in your beds and be silent. He's basically saying, don't lash out in anger. If you find anger coming up in your life, Go, if it takes all night, if you're in your bed and you wake up because you're angry, pray to God and say, well, tell me why I'm angry. Um, I describe anger to people as like the check engine light on your dash. Um, so it's, uh, it, it doesn't tell you what's wrong, it tells you something's wrong. And so when you start to feel angry, you have to figure out, why am I angry? Is this righteous anger or unrighteous anger? If it's righteous anger, what should I do about it? If it's unrighteous anger, how should I repent? You can imagine if the check engine light comes on and you simply pop the hood and start pulling spark plugs and, you know, I don't even know enough about cars to say what I would do if the check engine light would go off. Um, But it, it doesn't tell you what's wrong. But what if the check engine light comes on and you just decide to keep driving and not take it in? This check engine light says something's wrong, figure it out. That's what anger does. Something's wrong, figure it out. But we tend to do in our lives when we're angry, instead of figuring it out, we just lash out at whoever's around us. Rather than feeling like, is this righteous? Is this unrighteous? What's the right response? Do I need to repent? What, what needs to go on here? And so David is saying, listen, if you're angry, don't sin, figure it out. 
Second thing, um, or the, the third thing that he says is to worship God rightly. So verse five says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust um, in the Lord, that there is a right way to worship and follow the Lord, and there is a wrong way um, to worship and follow the Lord, and that is um, a sermon um, in and of itself. And so David, David gives some exhortation, some exhortation to his enemies um, in the midst of this, and then turns his prayer back around to close with God. And what he closes with God is what I call a grounding prayer. And grounding prayer is very important. Um, grounding prayer is different than petitionary prayer. Petitionary prayer is asking God for something. Grounding prayer is saying why it is that you're making the prayer. And so you see it um, end here in verses 7 and 8. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. He hasn't asked for anything, but he's still talking to God. It's a grounding prayer. He's, he's putting the ground of his request in the beginning. Why does he know that he can pray to this God? Why does he know that this God will answer this prayer? Because he says, listen, I, you are the God of all joy. These guys that I'm exhorting over here, these Philistines and Absalom and Saul, they could have wine and grain. They could have maxed out IRAs and 401ks. They can be healthy running triathlons and have wonderful kids and everything can be just going great for them. And even if my life is hard and I'm with you, Lord God, there is more joy with you than anything that they could get within the world. It's a grounding prayer. And that's good to remind ourselves of. If King David needed to remind himself of that, then so do we. And especially as we move more and more into a commercialized culture where more and more space is advertising space. I mean, you can't go anywhere. Like, it's amazing. I'm, I'm waiting to wake up one morning and find that somebody's, like, made the front of my house like a poster while I was sleeping. Like, you go down the road and you see them. On TV, you see them. Like, on the apps on your phone, you see them. You go in checkout line and you see them. Like, everywhere is advertising, advertising, advertising. And what are people trying to sell? If you have this, you'll be happy. If you have this, you'll be happy. If you have this, you'll be happy. And just in case you're looking, none of them say God. If you look this way, if you buy this drink, if you have this weight loss program, if you know this book, if you do this, you'll be happy. And so David's saying, grounding prayer, God, I'm praying to you this way and I'm coming to you because I don't believe any of them. Joy is with you and with you alone. And that's why I can pray because with you there is safety and there's peace and nowhere else. And so that's David praying to the Lord God. But here's where we go through our second lens. Where's the grace in this um, psalm. How do you know that this psalm is true for you and your circumstances? Because there's, there's always, there's somebody right now saying it, and you're not going to admit it because you don't want to admit it, but someone here this morning is saying, that's all true except for me. Somebody said it. Like I said, you're not going to admit it because you don't want to admit it, but somebody said it this morning. That's true for everyone else except me because it's what our hearts do with promises like this. We're willing to admit the truth for everyone else, but our circumstances are different. And the way that the New Testament undermines that is in a very unnerving way, in an unexpected way. So the Apostle Paul, remember we talked about a few weeks back, like you don't want to get in a, you don't want, you don't want to get in a Jew fight with Paul. Like he was King Jew. Like as far as like resume for Jewishness, like he had it. 
like the feet of Gamaliel, like he training, like he was so Jew that he even like tried to kill Christians. Like nobody was bigger Jew than the apostle Paul. Like he knew the Old Testament. At one point he says, as to the external works of obedience, I was perfect. I wasn't saying that he didn't need the sacrificial system, but he said, as far as Jewishness, I had it down. And so imagine Paul, pre-conversion, reading this psalm. Would he not look out over and think about all the enemies? Would he not maybe even quote those middle verses against Christians? Would he not even say these stupid, foolish Christians worship God rightly? Why are you doing this and undermining our religion? And this is where things changed for him. Ephesians 4, 26, really that whole passage from the beginning of Ephesians 4 all the way down, I think, through verses like 29, 30, 31, is something I've just reflected on so much because Paul is actually giving advice to Christians on how they can grow in their faith. He's coming to Christians, not his enemies. He's coming to people who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And he's trying to make an argument for this is how you live your life as a loved son or daughter within God's family. And where does he go? Remember, in his Jew mind, where does Paul, the converted Jew, go? He goes to a section in a psalm that's about the enemies of God. He had a ton. I mean, he could have quoted from the first two verses or the last two verses. Like one and two, seven and eight. Those are about the people of God. Middle section, David exhorting his enemies. And so Paul's thinking, Psalm 4, which one do I want to use to describe a born-again, saved, walking with Jesus Christian? And he goes right into the middle, into the enemy section. Just be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. By the way, as a sidelight, often gets held out as marriage advice for why you should always stay up and work through your conflicts and never go to sleep angry. It's really bad advice. No argument goes well after 10 p.m. So that's just free advice to me. If it hits 10 p.m. and you're angry at one another, you just table it to the morning. Nothing good happens. And people get this verse and say, we got to stay up. And so, you know, husband's staying up, bleary-eyed. It's 2 a.m. They're still trying to hack through it. And we can't let the sun go down on our anger. Um, it doesn't teach that anyway, because you saw Psalm 4.4. 4. It says, actually, if you're angry, be quiet and figure it out with God. And so much marriage um, conflict would be um, solved if each other, when they're angry, would just be quiet and figure it out with God and then talk to one another. So it's not you should stay up all night fighting. Um, but Paul uses it in that section in Ephesians 4 to say to Christians, be angry, do not sin. And then he goes through, let all malice and slander and wrath be taken away from you. And then he says, be kind, tenderhearted. And then the last verse is so beautiful. Just as God in Christ was kind to you. Do you see what Paul's done with this psalm? He isn't just reading it in verses 1, 2, 7, and 8. I am, of course, one of the elect people of God who has been chosen from all eternity to dwell with Christ. That's true. But he's also looking at it and saying, I was an enemy of the gospel. I didn't get in because I was chosen first for the kickball team. I got in because God looked at one of his enemies and had mercy. I got into this psalm because God sent his own son to bleed and die for me for his enemies. I have received so much 
grace. And if I've received that much grace as a forgiven enemy, how will God not give me any other thing? How will he not, how not answer this psalm if I pray it to me? If he's given Jesus to me, how can I not go to him with Psalm 4? No matter what I'm experiencing in my darkness, in my sin, in my discouragement, in my challenge, in my crisis, in my tragedy, if Christ died for me, how will he not give me every other thing? If he's loved me that much, how can Psalm 4 not be true for me? See, Paul got that. And so he wasn't embarrassed to take parts of Psalms that were on, enemies, enemy, on Israel's enemies and say, that was me. I wasn't good Jew. I was Philistine. I wasn't good Jew. I was tax collector before God's throne. And so not only am I chosen, dearly loved son or daughter, I am a redeemed and forgiven enemy of the cross. And so God has brought me in. And as you come to these Psalms, beloved, you have to see it in both. You act as if two pairs of glasses you can put on as you read these things. One, you read it. God loves you. You are a son, daughter, blessed. He's not a, a bad dad. He's not an abusive dad. He's not a dad if you asked him for a fish, he would give a scorpion. If you asked for bread, he would give a rock. He is the best dad that you can imagine. And so you come as a dearly loved son or daughter, chosen one in the gospel before time in Christ. But you also come with humility because you know what you once were. And you know given what you once were, what God did for you in the gospel And so we have this twin impetus to believe what is true in this psalm, that God hears our prayers, answers us, that in him is joy and peace, that we do dwell safely because we are both family and forgiven. That we are both citizens and we are citizens because we were foreigners and have been brought in. That's how we look at the psalms. And that's how we know that they're true. And so again, come back to this this morning before we leave this psalm. Give yourself a moment. Give your your inner contrarian, and all of us have one. We try to go to God. There's a part of us that just wants to say, not for you, not this time, not this way, not this event. You're messing it up. I I want you for a moment just to to let that inner contrarian speak for a second. What, What does he or she say? as an obstacle for you going to God this morning? What, what, what does he bring up? What does she bring up as to why you are not worthy, Christian, to come before the face of God and receive mercy and bring your prayers? And what I want you to do is, in the midst of that, say, no, no, no. I'm a dearly loved son or daughter. A lot of people don't get access to the president's office. His children get access all the time. I always have access to my father. But, but, but you don't know what you've done. Oh, no, no. I know what I've done. I can even add to your list of what I've done. Your list is incomplete on all the wrong things that I've done, all the reasons that you would want to bring. And Christ has died for all of them. None of those things, even the ones that you don't know inner contrarian, none of those things can bar me from access to God because Christ has died for me. I can come and I can pray and I can cry out for help and I can receive mercy and grace and know that God is with me because of what Christ has done and his death 
and in his resurrection, nothing can bar us access to coming to God in our trial and tragedy and sin and darkness and depression. The door is always open, and on both of those doors flung wide are bloody handprints and a path that leads right down the middle because there's one that's gone in front of us. It's a beautiful gospel. These psalms are not just your psalms because you have solidarity with the Israelites. These are your psalms because you are a bought son or daughter of God because Christ has given to them as a gift. And he says, pray these. Come to me with these. Let these be your words. Use these. Sing these. Believe these that they are true. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace to us in Christ. You have given us so much more than we deserve and you've given us even more than we know. And so, Father, as we walk this life of grace, besought with so many trials, tragedies, suffering, pain, challenges, and tears, yet you are great. You are the source of joy. You are in your presence where there is safety, and we come and cling to you and your promises here in this word, even as we continue our worship this morning in song and sacrament, praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. I encourage you to stand as we respond in song.